0: Well, Paul texted me, I think, on Wednesday and said, hey, you want to do Sunday school while you're there. And um, (laughs) it reminded me of a class I took at Chapel Hill. um, I was a political science major, and it was on, like, national security and nuclear policy and all that. And a few years earlier, the professor had come in at the end of the semester and said, wrote up on the board for the final exam, he said, write everything you've learned this semester about national security, you know, and it's like, where do you, I mean, where do you start with that? And yeah. so Paul says, but well, just, just anything you want to do in Sunday yeah. school, will be fine, you know, and so it's like, Paul, give me some sense, of, I mean, give me something obscure if you want, but you, you got to give me something, and he mentioned, um, I don't think this is breaking any confidences or whatnot, but... He mentioned that as a session, one of the things that the session had been thinking about um, was learning to see ourselves the way God sees us. Um, And just sort of wrestling with, okay, what is that? How does that work itself out in the life of the church? And so I, that immediately, when he said that, brought to mind something that I read a few years ago that I found a immensely helpful in thinking about people, thinking about myself, um, trying to take apart people and all of their messes and dysfunctions and whatnot and how to think about that. And so I wanted to uh, maybe go through some of that with you this morning. Um, In theology, in our understanding of God and what he's revealed about himself, One of the sub-departments of that is anthropology. Now, in college, you may have um, seen a department of anthropology. There are no anthropology majors here. Yeah, y'all look entirely too normal. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, anthropology was concerned with civilizations and all that. But go back to the Greek, um, anthropos, which is man, and logos, uh, in this case, would be the study of. And so in theology... The subset of anthropology is our doctrine of man, our doctrine of human beings, our understanding of what God has said in the scriptures about who we are as people um, and how we um, relate to God and how are we both fallen and righteous and things like that. And so um, I wanted to uh, unpack this framework that I've run across, Um, and it really comes from this book written by a guy named Mike Emlett. Any of you familiar with CCEF, Christian Counseling and Education Foundation? They're they're connected to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, And I think they do the best job of anybody I've seen of integrating a biblical anthropology, of integrating the truth of the scriptures with counseling um, and really restoring counseling to the church where it kind of ought to be, but equipping Christians and pastors and whatnot um, in that area. Mike Emlett, who is one of their uh, fellows there, um, is a medical doctor and he's also um, has an MDiv from Westminster. And so he sort of bridges, especially in the areas of some of these um, uh, things that have physical causes and whatnot. He's really good sort of at the intersection of what is you know physical and chemical and what is emotional and whatnot, and thinking through that. But he wrote up this book, and the title is going to give it away. It's called Saints, Sufferers, and Sinners. Um, It helps me to have a grid or a framework when I walk into something that I can sort of hang uh, different facts on to try to make sense of those facts. And so this morning, I want us to unpack his framework, this three-part framework. is um, he said, every Christian you meet is a saint, every Christian you meet is a sufferer, and every Christian you meet is a sinner. And it's really helped me, maybe in thinking about my own self and life, to understand what is my nature in Christ as a saint, as one who has been um, redeemed, declared righteous uh, in Christ. What um, are the effects of sin on me, other people's sin, my own sin? And then, so as a sufferer, and then to what extent is does my own sin play into that? And this really came to mind, even just in the last few weeks, Um, a friend of ours from way back in our early married life does some writing for Desiring God, uh, which is Piper's online ministry. And she uh, was writing... So I knew this girl distantly in high school. Um, And she was Indian. She walked with a pretty profound limp. She was very bubbly, kind of the life of the party, but there was a physical disability that was related to polio uh, that she had developed as a child in India before her parents came to the States when she was like two. And when we knew them, um, she was married to a guy and they had two kids. Um, They had a third child and he, like sudden infant death syndrome, died when he was maybe three months or something like that. A few years later, her husband left her, um, and then her polio symptoms have been getting, there's something called post-polio syndrome. And so I think Vinita pretty much is like, can't walk at all now, um, and increasingly struggles to do a lot of physical things. And so if there's anybody who we would say has suffered, um, it would be someone like like Vanitha. She was also writing about balancing these three categories of who I am in Christ. And then we would all say, well, gee, and you sure have suffered a lot, some of it natural evil in the world, um, things like polio and whatnot, as well as human caused evil, like your husband walking out on you and things like that. Uh, And maybe even, I think, in the case of their son's death, I think, tied back pretty closely to a medical mistake uh, that they were able to kind of piece together in the months after that with a change in some medications. And yet, of all people, Benetha says, you know, but as I struggle with those things, the temptation is that people then give me a license to sin uh, with bitterness, or with anger, or with a self-centeredness, like a, you know, a cockroach that sort of is dead and just sort of it's, everything is turned in on itself. And that was just an example of how I think this framework can really help us understanding ourselves, understanding each other, and then knowing how do I encourage you as a saint, as one who has been made righteous in Christ, who has a new identity in Christ? How do I um, put my arm around you and encourage you as a sufferer? But then how do I also encourage and admonish you in the Lord to not let these things become an excuse for um, things that don't look like Christ? So Let's unpack this a little bit. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, if any of you have a Roman Catholic background or maybe a high church Anglican background, um, you grew up hearing the language of saints. And that's often um, in kind of popular discourse. We think of a saint as this sort of... um, You know, there are general admission Christians, and then there are, you know, reserve seating Christians, and then these saints are the ones that have the boxes, you know, and they they have like the special parking in heaven. And they're really kind of the righteous of the righteous, you know, the cream of the cream. And the scriptures just don't give us those categories. Um, That really is a human invention. Because the Bible speaks of all of us as having been made saints. Now, the word saint comes from Latin and from this idea of being sanctified. And something that is sanctified is something that has been set apart. It's been set apart from a common use to a holy use. But we go to a place like Ephesians chapter 1, if you look in verse 3, and Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse four, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse five, we were predestined for adoption. Verse seven, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Uh, We're the recipients of the riches of his grace. He's lavished that upon us, verse eight. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Um, verse 11, we have an inheritance. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Um, over in chapter uh, 2, uh, uh, beginning at verse 4, you know, his great love with which he loved us. We are, as Paul will write in 2 Corinthians 5, we are new creations. We are not what we were. Um, Our old self has died, and we're going to talk about how our old self is also struggling to live in a minute. But in a judicial sense, um, in a, we use the term sometimes, forensic sense, in having been declared righteous, Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. It's been credited to our account, even though every one of us struggles with our own righteousness. And we we want to become more and more like Jesus, but that's a daily progressive process. But even in our experience as it's a progressive process, we have been declared righteous. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. We are not what we once were. And so this this framework of saint is really important because if if all we see is how we suffer and how we sin, then that just leads to despair. If all I can see is the things that have been done to me or the things even that I've done to myself, and if all I see is how, um, how I have sort of sown the wind and reaped the whirlwind, to, to use a scriptural um, uh, metaphor, that just leads to such despair if I don't also see what God has done in Christ. That he, um, through nothing I've done, he has declared me worth the blood of his own son so we need so much to start with our being saints but we also um, are sinners uh, go to First John chapter 1 uh, somebody um, y'all don't want to just hear me talk somebody read First John chapter 1 maybe verse um, verse
1: 8 through 10 if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us we are declared righteous we know all of these
0: riches that we have in Christ Jesus we read through the New Testament and we see what God has done for us. Uh, we're going to look at that some in Hebrews chapter 10 in the worship service this morning. And yet, uh, John can write, if we say we don't sin, we deceive ourselves. Um, if you think you don't sin, ask your spouse. and They will quickly uh, disabuse you of the notion that you don't sin. We all struggle with our old man. Uh, Paul in Romans chapter 7 will write um, for I do not do the good I want but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want it's no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me. And so having been declared righteous there is still this residual practice of sin in us that is that daily struggle, which is why John says um, if, if, if we sin, we confess our sin and God is faithful in Christ to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that's a lifelong process. And the irony of that process is as you grow in grace, is you're making progress in the battle against sin. You become even more aware of your sin. And so you, you really are, if you were to look back over the sweep of your life, you really are making progress in sanctification. You are taking on more and more of the family likeness. And yet it doesn't feel that way. Um, <laughs> because what's happening... Is you're becoming more and more aware of how corrupt you really are, and how how great is the gap between a holy God and me, and how great is my need of a Savior because of my sin. And so, we we um, we're, we're aware of our sin. Um, actually, I'm I'm sort of changed up my order here. It just just hit me, but so saint and sinner. I think it was Spurgeon who said that the only one of the five points of Calvinism that was empirically provable was total depravity. You know, (laughs) uh, just just have a toddler, you know, and you immediately know about total depravity. But so we are sinners, and there is this ongoing battle in our lives against sin. We are saints. We we have we are new creations in Christ Jesus. And we live with that tension. And then we are also um, sufferers. Um, Think back in the Bible. Um, Often it is the lot of God's people to suffer. And God often is doing his great work. You know, the the image the scriptures use is the silver and a crucible. And if silver would be purified, you have to heat it up and you boil off what's called the dross those impurities so that you get to the pure thing um, there is a really a lie i mean a lie from the pit of hell itself uh, out there which is that if you really are sold out to Christ and if you really um, don't have any any um, sin that you're holding on to that things will just go great for you and that you'll um, you'll get healthy and you'll get wealthy um, and things will just go great and if they're not going great there must be some sin that you are holding on to. Tell that to Jesus in the garden. Tell that to the Apostle Paul in prison. Tell that to, to Peter being martyred. Tell that to James and to John. Tell that to... Chinese brothers and sisters you know holding on to little scraps of scripture. Christians in North Korea where you know you possess a a piece of scripture you die. Um, no questions asked. I mean you know game set match. Um, that really is a, a lie from the pit of hell itself. Now we want to take our sin seriously and we want to come before the Lord and ask him Lord what are you you know is there some Is this some way you're trying to get my attention about this? But think to John chapter 9, when uh, the the teachers of the law bring a man who had been born blind to Jesus. And they said, Lord, who sinned, This man or his parents? I mean, that that was the framework. You know, it was kind of like the question, you know, are you still beating your wife? Well, how do you answer? No, I'm not still beating. So that means you did or, you know, you are. So their choices they gave Jesus were, did this man sin or did his parents sin? That, that was their idea. It must be because somebody sinned. And Jesus, I think it's in verse 3 of John 9, says neither. It was so that the works of God might be demonstrated. Um, it was so that we might see the glory of God in this man and in his redemption. And so we... Um, Suffering is life in a fallen world, and often let me let me put that into two two buckets of evil as we suffer. One is what I'll call natural evil. Now it's not natural in the sense that uh, it's the way God made the world, but it's natural things like a tornado or a. Um, Flood, or perhaps a health challenge, cancer, or something like that. Um, It's natural in the sense that it's not caused by a specific person. And yet, um, there's also evil that is caused by people. Um, You know, some of you, I I don't know you well, but some of you, I'm sure, have profound scars from childhood, um, things that never should have happened to you. That are sin, and you bear the effects of somebody else's sin in your life. Um, and I would put my, you know, friend uh, Vinitha, uh in that category as well. Uh, when Dave walked out on Veneta, I remember. I mean, we we probably saw them socially six or eight times a year there for a few years. When he walked out on her to take up with somebody he was working with left her with these two young children, she was sinned against. Now, yeah. she was also, if you will, a victim of natural evil in the sense that it was polio. It was this non-personal thing, uh, this this disease, this illness. But She was a victim of both of those things. So we understand so vividly in a, in a life like that of what it is to be a sufferer. And it's been enormously, um, it's been wonderful to watch as she kind of writes publicly often about growing in her understanding of being a saint, that her value is not in what household tasks she can do or can no longer do, but that she was fearfully and wonderfully made. She was sewn together in in her mother's womb. But, again, I I was struck by her saying, you know, but I'm also a sinner. And I can, if I'm not careful, I will start to have a pity party. And if I'm not careful, I will start to be entitled to be bitter. And, you know, and look how, I mean, wouldn't, if somebody were crying on our shoulder, and they had a story like that. I mean, it would be so tempting. And I think, you know, we all get uncomfortable. People get upset. We don't know what to say. We're worried we're going to say the wrong thing. And so we would end up indulging that bitterness. And we would end up patting them on the back and saying, oh, I I know. I know that what he did, he was horrible and yada, yada, yada. And her point was, that is not what I need. Um, Praise God. He has declared who I am in Christ I can't change how I've suffered but I can change what I do with it Um, let me me think about some with you about some real world examples of this Um, I think we've probably all observed tendencies in families that maybe there's think sometimes surely there has to be some genetic thing in some families. Um, you know, some... I mean, we're all kind of garden variety crazy. You know? <laughs> but, um, but I mean, some people are like, you know, Olympic class crazy. And it comes sometimes in... You see that in families. And you know that some of it is uh, just dysfunctional systems. And, you know, a friend of mine one time said, yeah, my wife's family puts the fun back in dysfunction. Um, but, uh, he said it in front of her and she didn't disagree, (laughs) but, um, but, you know, so we see patterns that get picked up. Um, we see sometimes, you know, in families, you see, uh, patterns like of drug abuse or of alcohol abuse. And you just think, Gosh, I'm not sure all this was learned. I think some of it was just, I hate to say it, bad choice of words. It was in the water uh, uh, in that house. So somebody that comes through that or is a sinner, I mean, is a sufferer, but they're also not just a victim there. They're, They're also a sinner. And so... It doesn't change the suffering. It doesn't change the way they ways they've been sinned against. But that being sinned against doesn't become a license for me now to go and sin in the same way. Because I am a saint. And because God has intervened. He, you know, in in Ephesians chapter two. You know, we were dead in sins and trespasses. We were following the prince of the power of the air. And then that glorious beginning of Ephesians 2, 4, when Paul says, but God, you know, in every one of us who are in Christ, our lives are uh, the most, maybe the most important words in our lives are, but God, you know, I am this bundle of my background and all that, but God has intervened in Christ Jesus. And now I am. A saint. Uh, I have been declared righteous and God's spirit is at work and I'm more and more dying to sin and living to righteousness as the shorter catechism says. But as I do that I'm also a sinner and so I need to take ownership if you will of the places where I'm using my suffering as an excuse for sin. Um. You know, imagine um, maybe people you've known who, who, as I say, have been through horrific things and they have been sinned against. They have known the effects of sin and the fall in the world, uh, whether through particular people or through what I was sort of in this context referring to as natural evil. Um, Okay, what do I, I... I'm this person's friend, how do I encourage them as a saint? How do I love them as a sufferer? And how do I also love them as a sinner enough to speak truth there? Um, I've gone on way longer than I should. I really wanted us to, to talk through this stuff some. So y'all think I'm crazy? You think, does this, this kind of make sense? Um, you see a problem with this?
2: You no, know, I think I've seen think people that suffered and the right? And like you said, I don't know that they're thinking I'm justified to do sin because this happened to me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's sometimes their reaction to it, you know. And it's almost a process to get back to God, or they blame God. And, yeah, that's the thing, you know. How did God? Faithful
1: you know um, Christian, and so how did
0: God have this happen to be? he's in controller you know? mm-hmm. um I think it was like eighteen fifty seven or fifty eight James Henley Thornwell had been the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, and then he became the president of what was what became the University of South Carolina there in Columbia and a terrible hurricane had come toward the South Carolina coast and hadn't just, you know, bounced off the coast and stayed in the ocean. It had sort of come up the the, the low country, and you can imagine the devastation of crops and of livestock and things like that. And the South Carolina legislature, this shows you how much the world has changed in 150 years, South Carolina legislature asked Dr. Thornwell to come preach a sermon (laughs) to a joint session of the legislature to help them understand sort of God's word to them in this time. And Dr. Thornwell um, began the sermon by saying, I I wish I could read part of it to you, but he, he began by saying, when something like this happens, we think we are cursed by God or God is somehow angry with us or he doesn't love us as much as he loves other people. But then Thornwell, to to, to your point, goes on and says, actually, after searching our hearts for known sin, perhaps this storm is a sign of God's love for us because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He doesn't leave us in our sin, but he is transforming us from one degree of glory to another. He is making us fit for eternity, fit for heaven. Um, and in that storm, He is taking the things that we cling to in this life, and He is prying them out of our uh, fingers. And He is making us to see the brevity of life and the passing of things. And when Jesus talks about um, treasure, you know, not laying up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven, where thieves can't break it and steal, and moths can't destroy. Um, and rust can't destroy. Um, Thornwell's point is we ought to see these as hard gifts from our heavenly Father, not as evidences that we're not that we're not loved. And, and, and see, this flies so in the face of what I'll call the operification <laughs> of our world. I mean, we, everybody. In our own sin nature, we're sort of, we're sort of firmware in us is I'm a victim, and now we live in a we swim in a water every day that says Darn right, you're a victim, you know. And if you've been injured, call this number, (laughs) you know, and we'll get you a big settlement because you're owed because you are a victim, um, and so it's just. It's really countercultural to say, "Yeah, I'm a sinner." I mean, I'm a sufferer, but I'm also a sinner. Um, and you see how the enemy can take suffering and whisper in our ear, "Did God really say?" Whether it's our being a saint or our being a sinner. Anybody else?
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, it's a, it's a very helpful framework, the title of the book. Um, it's it's funny, because on the other side of it, what we've been talking about in at least one of the things we've, we've talked about in Job is um, offering comfort to people who are suffering. Yeah. And particularly when you're rather new to the Reformed faith, it can be very easy to forget that suffering is a part of the anthropologic experience. <laughs> um, So, you know, you just quote, like, beat them over the head with the Bible of you're a sinner, like, stop being, like, stop suffering, basically. Um, And oftentimes, in my experience with with friends, and myself, too, to a degree, or perhaps entirely, it's the suffering that shows you, like, something's off in this world. You know, maybe the person or me isn't really familiar with the idea of sin, but it's the suffering, which is sort of the entry point. And then you become aware of sin. Yeah. So anyway, that's just
0: Yeah, something. yeah. You know, um was it Belinda Carlisle that's saying heaven is a place on earth. Um, ooh baby do you know what it's you know. Now you're gonna have that song stuck in your head all morning. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's gonna live rent-free in your head. Uh, um, but between that and the prosperity that we enjoy, I mean we I mean, you talk about hitting the jackpot in human history. Um, when you look at the way every—I mean, the poorest person in this room lives—it is wildly better than the richest person in the world lived 100 years ago. I mean, they had nothing for dental pain. <laughs> they had—they had no antibiotics. They had um, almost no air conditioning in the world at that time. I mean, you just tick off uh, all of the ways that our lives are so much more comfortable and. Uh, prosperous um, and so we're very insulated I mean, we can get insulated from our suffering
2: yeah.
0: Now we we can't I mean, we run from it but we can't hide from it but we can make things awfully comfortable to take some of the edge off of those things um, and you know we, we're not we're not um, sometimes I wonder if we aren't too quick to, do, to to try to take that edge off. I was As you were talking Andrew I was thinking about Paul at the beginning of 2 Corinthians when he says we do not want you to be unaware brothers of the affliction we experienced in Asia for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Yep. This is the Apostle Paul. I mean he 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 was the one who had the vision. He heard Jesus' voice when he said on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I mean, if anyone had the intimacy of a relationship, a vital relationship uh, by the Spirit with the risen Christ, it was the Apostle Paul. And yet he said it was so bad, we despaired of life itself. Paul didn't want to go on. <laughs> I mean, he he had those points, and if he has those points, we shouldn't be surprised when we have those points. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's life in a fallen world. Um. So, let me let me throw out. um, Mike Enleit does this really well in this book. Let let me throw out um, maybe some scenarios of. you know you're, uh, you're 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 talking to somebody and they struggle with um, with pornography and there's been things in their background where they've really been sinned against and dysfunction growing up and and they're a Christian you you, you don't doubt that and yet. Um, there's this struggle that is ongoing. Um, how do you? How how would you interact with that person in these different categories? Do all three apply? Do only two apply? You know, do you emphasize one over the other?
3: What What, what do you think? Remind us of the three categories.
0: Saint. Sinner like <laughs> and suffer. See, the whiteboard is too far for me to get to, and, uh, and I didn't know how to do this fancy <laughs> thing that Paul does. You know, the Paul Paul is the John Madden. You know, uh, the, yeah. you know uh, diagramming the play. Uh, saint, sinner,
3: and sufferer. What would you emphasize out of those three if that person? Uh, <laughs>
0: yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I want to affirm to somebody who is in the grip of sin that they just can't seem to get past that you really are a new creation in Christ because one of the ways the enemy discourages us, I mean, he, the enemy typically does one of two things: says, "Oh." Sin is not that important. It's not really that big a deal. That's typically before we, before we uh, sin. And then after we sin, it, it goes from being not a big deal to, wow, you probably aren't even a Christian. Yeah. Because if you were a real Christian, you wouldn't sin like that. And you would have known victory over that. So you really are kind of a second class Christian at best and you probably aren't really a Christian, and so you really don't have a savior you can flee to. So in that situation, I wanna help somebody understand their identity in Christ and that they really are a new creation. Um, you know, when John writes to the church there, the passage that Andrew read, um, if we say we have no sin, you know, that we, we're lying but John is writing that to Christians. John is not concerned that because they sin, they must not be really Christians. Um, he is writing to them and saying, and he's not even saying if you sin. He's effectively saying when you sin, this is what you do with it. You bring it to the cross. You confess it. You repent of it. You turn from it. Um, you know, Christ has not only paid sin's penalty. He is broken sin's power. And so I want to help somebody really think about that. And I want to acknowledge the way they've been sinned against. But that made the sufferer part is probably the part I don't want to indulge as much. I want to acknowledge it. It's true. But that really is an identity that more and more needs to become a past identity, and more and more, I want you to understand who you are in Christ, and then I want you to understand what are the patterns of sin what are the what are the things that trigger that pattern of sin? you know, let's flee from those you know if you um you know if you if that's something you indulge in. Because you sleep with your iPad next to your bed. Well, then I think you need to charge your iPad in the next room. You know, or maybe you need to not have it. Mean, well, whatever. Let, let's start dealing with it. Because the enemy wants to convince you, oh, you, you, you have no volition. This is just who you are. You're a victim, etc. And that's all true. That, I mean, you are a victim. But God doesn't leave us where we are. You know, he, he takes all of the mess and all of the junk and all of the ways that we have been sinned against and all of the ways that we've sinned. And he places that on Christ Jesus at the cross. And he takes the righteousness of Christ and he places it on us. And we begin to live in that new identity. And so I want to I want to probably affirm more the saint and the sinner and less the sufferer. Now, imagine this same guy, and I'm using guys because I know guys better than... I've been married 32 years, and I realize I understand women less and less uh, as it goes on. Um, so, um, but imagine somebody who... Um, Beats themselves up Because of their sin And they acknowledge Okay yeah I'm in Christ But man I just I'm, I'm just ter- I'm a horrible person Well maybe we need To unpack Okay, You know you're part of Why you are Partially because of your Sin nature but you're partially that way because of Other people's sin nature And there are some unique ways in your background That you were sinned against that have then shaped the patterns by which you sin. And so it could be a situation where this person who is suffering, we need to stop and kind of box that out a little bit and flesh that out. Um, you know, or there's the person who understands that they are a, and I know I keep getting my my, my buckets, it's got to be confusing to y'all, um, the sinner and the sufferer but they really need to understand who they are in Christ Jesus. And that that sin is not what defines them now. Uh, Maybe they've been struggling with that in such a way that it has become a self-effort. And I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And I'm going to make God proud of me because nobody's ever been proud of me. And they need to understand you're loved with an everlasting love. Um, And that God grieves over your sin, but you're not somehow on probation with God. That in fact, he He has loved you from before the foundation of the world. So, you know, different people need different things at different times. Um, you know, and I need different things at different times. Um, you can... I think particularly in in the times in which we live, as I said, you don't have to work very hard to be a sufferer. Um, You you know, everywhere around you is telling you that you are a sufferer, you're a victim. I think most of us in this day and time need to understand, yeah, that's true, but what I do with that and how I respond to that needs to be shaped by who I am in Christ, not I mean, this, this endless pity party that just becomes, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm av- I mean, that's just a downward spiral that goes nowhere. There's no hope in that. There's hope in the gospel, and there's hope in understanding that I, I've got volition here. Um, I, I don't have to be in this endless spiral of, of, of being defined as a victim. That's not my identity. My identity is in Christ Jesus. And now I'm gonna I'm gonna live in light of that. Not in a way that's you know, I'm gonna close my eyes and click my heels three times and you know. You've heard the um, the old joke about the the Baptist and the Presbyterian and the Christian science practitioner who all died and went to hell. And they're kind of in the waiting room. And the Baptist is over in one corner, and he's like, "I don't know what happened. I mean, I told people about Jesus, and I drove the bus, and I did a lana, and all my sword drills, and I just don't know how this happened." And the Presbyterians off in another corner of the waiting room, saying, "You know, I, I memorized the catechism, and I tithed, and I, you know, I did, I kept the Lord's Day, and all these. I just don't know what happened." And the Christian science practitioners over in another corner say, it's not hot and I'm not here. It's not hot and I'm not here. You know, just this kind of mind over matter thing. So we don't want to encourage people to think that they can just sort of think their way out of this. But we also, um, like I say, I don't think most people for garden variety Things that we've all, you know, you realize at some point everybody's family had its was kind of dysfunctional, and every every family has, you know, every family has its own weirdness just in its own unique way. Um, but there, there there are people who need to understand more deeply how they've been sinned against. Were they blaming themselves for other people's sin? And so I'm, I'm, I don't want to at all minimize that, but. I think most of us need to understand what our response is to it in light of who we are in Christ.
2: I like your point about focusing first on who they are in Christ. Because I think we're all judgmental, right? You know, and um, I've had friends who have had great suffering, right? And um, they hang on to that, right? Mm -hmm. After a while, we're trying to encourage them to get to the point of just. You know, being frustrated and kind of judgmental, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Move on. <laughs> yeah. or yeah, it, it becomes identity. Yeah,
2: yeah. You know,
0: yeah. We, we everybody's concerned about identity yeah. these days, and you know, <laughs> how, how do you identify and you know intersectionality and how many boxes can you check yeah. of, of victimhood? Yeah. But I mean, that just doesn't lead anywhere, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it bec- it can become an excuse for. You know these terrible things have happened to me therefore I'm entitled and who of us wants to be the meanie who says well yeah those things have happened to you and I love you and I'm gonna sit here and cry with you as long as you want to sit here and cry because we ought to weep over suffering in the world but when we finish crying (laughs) you know now now how do you keep a root of bitterness know from from being there Um, you know we ought to be the most compassionate people because we know what sin is we know what sin does to people we know what sin cost it costs Christ Jesus body and blood Um, so we ought to be the most compassionate people but we also need to be the most realistic people because we know what the Bible says about our own hearts and and about how we are, are, are you know that's why we need to be in the body of Christ because if I'm just sitting home with my own thoughts I can talk myself into all kind of crazy things about how I'm I need people to speak truth into my life I need the elders of the church I need other Christians who will come alongside me because I'm thoroughly capable on my own of messing up the Christian life. We weren't made to live the Christian life in isolation. You know, all of those commands in the Bible about love one another and serve one another and be kind to one another, and all of those one another's, by definition, you can't do by yourself. It takes another person to do the one another's. Wow.
3: So, how do you have those conversations with a non-Christian? You know, when they don't acknowledge the identity and the sanctity they have at all. I mean, a lot of us interact with. All yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's a great question. And the way Mike Emlet addressed it is that I think we, we take a step back and we acknowledge that you are an image bearer. Uh, you've been made in the image of God. And there are longings and desires in your heart that reflect that you were made in the image of God. And almost in a loving, gentle, long, persistent, patient way of letting that point them to this God-sized void um, yeah, in, in, in their lives. But, you know, we always affirm to people, you bear the image of God because you're a human being, however much you might not think you bear the image
3: of God the challenging thing with your sorry oh sorry Deaf in one ear can't hear out of the other one you know I understand Um, I think one of the challenging things with what you're talking about with the suffering and you the pornography example versus the death example like the the level of suffering and then the distance from that suffering and what you've done with that time is as Christians how to distinguish what I mean, it's obviously it's wisdom, but it's, it's a challenging thing to figure out where you are in that cycle. If you're a year removed from the death of a loved one, or if you're ten years removed, or yeah. if you're, yeah. you know, the abuse that you suffered as a child was twenty-five years ago, right. and your life has choices stacked up, or going like mm-hmm. some of those are a little easier. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, things, yeah. But, but there does come a line where it's very challenging. Yeah. To know. What yeah. am I supposed to do in this situation, yeah. and how am I supposed to respond to this person who has genuine suffering?
0: I mean, when you know Paul, who was beneath and Dave's son, died, was not the time to talk about. You now, don't let this become a means of sin in your life. It was the time to sit and cry, and really not say a thing. Um, but it—that's. And the wisdom to know what the right thing to do is comes in relationship with other people in the body. And it's why we need to move toward the body. It's why, you know, when you are tempted to sleep in on Sunday morning, you may go to worship and not get a thing out of it. But you don't know what somebody got as a result of you being there. Um, And it may just be because you were there. Um, Have you ever had people in your life that they were kind of maybe at work or neighborhood that were kind of distant, but after you were around there for a while, they figured out you weren't just going to be gone in a month or a year or five years. And then they strangely warm up to you and it's like you didn't do anything different, but there was something about just being there that transformed the relationship over over a period of time. Um, And I I think, I think it takes that real wisdom. It it wouldn't be appropriate, because I mean, we're at the, like with my friend Benita, I mean, we're at the Christmas card, Christmas letter stage. I mean, I think Patty talked to her about five years ago, before that it had been 10 or 15 years. And so it would be weird and inappropriate for me to write Vanitha and tell her all about her sin. (laughs) You know, um, she could probably write me right back and tell me about mine (laughs) in the course of doing that. Um, But that's where where it takes a village to raise a Christian. That's where we need the fellowship of one another over a long period of time. Um, I think it was Jim Boyce who said, to pastors, he said, "You'll be disappointed at what you can get done in a church in one year, and you'll be amazed at what God does in five years." And I think there's a parallel to that relationally. Um, there's something that happens over time that you just can't. You know, was it um, was it Kenny and Dolly that sang that song? You can't make old you can't make old friends, uh, or you can't make new old friends, or something like that. I mean, you can only do that over a long period of time in relationship with each other.